you want to be for somebody. You're there to serve them. If you come from service, then whatever you do is going to be perceived that way. And then if they need what you have or want what you have, they're going to want to play. And then it's a matter of you just making sure that they understand clearly what you have. Plug into the minds of the world's cutting-edge innovators, visionaries, and thought leaders who are rewriting the rules of sales and success. It's your time to make an impact. I am your host, Jason Mark Campbell, and this is the Selling with Love podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Selling with Love podcast. I am so excited to have a legend in the field joining me today, a man who needs little introduction for all of you who are involved in the field of personal growth because, matter of fact, he has been a pioneer in that industry. The man behind the billion-dollar chicken soup for the soul publishing empire has been a multiple New York Times bestselling author, things such as The Success Principles, which I am currently towards the end of that book. This is what I'm reading every time I go running to inspire me to understand the principles that are time-tested and true to bring more success into your life. We have The Power of Focus, Dare to Win, The Key to Living, The Law of Attraction, and the list goes on. The man has sold over 500 million books worldwide, has been featured on over thousands of TV shows and radios, have trained over 2,900 Canfield Success Principle trainers, in over 107 countries and has founded the ever high prestige transformational leadership council many of our guests on the podcast that you've seen have been members of that council where they are really having conversations between everyone in this industry to elevate consciousness around the planet and truly being a unit to bring impact and change for positivity it's such a pleasure to have you mr jack canfield on the show welcome oh my pleasure thank you for having me jason Jack, it's such a pleasure to have you here. And, you know, I was just having a chat with you how you're here on a Selling with Love podcast. And one of the questions I'm I'm wondering when it comes to marketing and sales and making transformation is it seems like a lot of people choose to use fear as a way of getting people to move, take action. And the question's almost like, well, where's the love in success? Like, are we having to compete on these lower vibration like fear or greed and appeal to people's lowest needs to get them to take any action? And is there still room for love and positivity to make a change happen right now? Yeah, I think that, you know, certainly that stuff works to a point, but I made a commitment many, many years ago not to do anything that induces fear uh, or, you know, try to accelerate people's experience of their own pain and so forth. So I don't think it's necessarily. I think, you know, there's a guy named Moshe Feldenkrais who did body work. He was a judo guy in Israel and he got injured and he started looking at how to fix his body. And what he discovered in his work is if you work on one half of the body, like your right side, then the left side goes, wait a second, that feels better over there. I want this on this side of my body. So if you expose people to something that's loving, fun, uplifting, safe, encouraging, etc., people want that. They're, they're attracted to it. And so basically with our selling, if you want to call it that, we a friend of mine coined a term called heart sale. Instead of hard sale, you don't hard sell people, you heart sell them and you appeal to their higher self, to inspiration, to their vision of what they aspire to. And the idea we can teach people from the place of love and not fear and cultivate that piece that something is possible for them. And we all want more. We want more love, more joy, more happiness, more impact in the world, more full expression of our essence, of our um, you know gifts, etc. And when you help people realize that that's possible, then people are attracted to that. So I don't think you have to do the classic, you know, what are the pain points and drill that home and then finally you're the solution to all that pain. I think you can be the solution to all that passion and all that desire to express and be more of who you really are. I love hearing that. I'm glad that an agent such as yourself is promoting that because I think we need a whole lot more of it. 
there's something you mentioned in what you just said, which is the whole concept of hard sale. And I have to share one of my pet peeves I hear a lot, which I know you're no stranger to sales neither. And I was talking to a team who are looking to put together a retreat and they're saying, oh yeah, we're going to have some people take on sales calls at the end, but we're not going to use salespeople because we don't want any of that hard sell. And it breaks my heart because as someone who advocates for people to embrace sales as a beautiful craft that really empowers you, the fact that people associate that selling equals hard sell, and that's what a salesperson does, breaks my heart because I know there's so many more beautiful ways and effective ways of selling, and hard sell isn't even effective. I'd be curious to know from your side, what has been your experience in the type of sales that have been most effective when you've used it in your industry to build the empire that you've built today? Well, I think the very basis of it, I would call it sharing more than selling. In other words, if I discover a cure to cancer, I want to share that with you. You know, if I have a map that leads you to a gold mine and there's a lot of gold enough for everybody, I want to share that with you so you can go get the gold, get the cure for cancer, whatever it might be. So for me, I've always had this image of my work as being climbing to the top of a mountain where there's a big ball of light gathering as much light as I can hold, going back down the mountain and handing out snowballs of light to everybody. So that's kind of what I'm about and believing that there are solutions to all problems that people can have that give them the experiences they want, experiences of love, being better parents, making a difference, being happier, etc. I will share a model I learned. It is a way, in a sense, to let people you know about their pain but without rubbing their nose in it and without basically saying, you've got this and you need to handle it. So there's a friend of mine named Joel Roberts. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He's a, a trainer for many years of people about how to be on a talk show. And he was the number one talk show host in LA on KBC, I think it was called, that was the highest rated show during drive time in the evening going home. And he noticed once that he was interviewing John Gray, who wrote Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. And he said, there was something about that that was the best interview I ever had. And so I went back and I listened to it again. And then I began to notice other interviews I had that were really successful. And I noticed a pattern. And the pattern was, it goes like this. He calls it the dip. You're going along in life. And all of a sudden, there's something called a crisis. You have an automobile accident. You get your foot injured like you recently did. You go bankrupt. Your wife leaves you. You get diagnosed with leukemia. You go bankrupt. Some new technology comes along and basically puts your technology out of business. Amazon comes along and all of a sudden your local retail store isn't working as well. Whatever it might be, that's this crisis. And that crisis sends you down into the valley. And what you want to do is describe the valley as if you've had it, you know, you tell your own story. So in John's situation, he said, I was not happy in relationships. I was going along having these serial monogamy relationships that never lasted that long. And I just was sick of it. And he said, so here I am in this crisis. And he said, then describe when you're in that place, what he calls the valley, describe your own experience. So I was lonely. I was frustrated. I thought maybe I'll never have a relationship in my own life for me. I was going along and all of a sudden I didn't have any money. I went to graduate school, got a job as a teacher, was making very little money a year. I was living in a $79 a month apartment, if you can imagine such a thing. And it had a Murphy bed that came out of the wall. Behind that was the closet. I had a little refrigerator, it was the size of a, the kind of mini bar you get in a hotel. I had a two burner stove. Literally, I could take three steps and hit the wall on either side of my apartment. And I was living, you know, $120 a week was my pay. So the first two weeks, to subtract 79 from 120, I had like, you know, very little money to live on. I was eating what I called my 21 cent dinners, which was tomato paste with garlic salt, salt and pepper, water, and noodles. Today, it'd be the ramen noodles that the kids eat in school. And I could go into, you know, I had to go to work on a bus and all these different things I couldn't do, couldn't take people out on dates. So I described that in great detail. And then you say, and then I discovered something. So in my case, I discovered the success principle. I discovered a man named W. Clement Stone, who was a friend and a colleague of Napoleon Hill, who wrote Think and Grow Rich. And together they wrote a book on success as well. And I discovered those. And I started applying them in my life, and my life took off. So you're down in the valley, 
describe it in detail. Now, people can go, oh, he wasn't born with a silver spoon. You know, he's not some rich guy that started out. He actually was poor, like I am now, or not as well as he wanted to be. And then he discovered something. And what I discovered was W. Clement Stone. I discovered the success principles. John Gray discovered that men were different than women. He was treating women like men. And, you know, doing the things that you do when you're a man, like, you know, woman tells you a problem, you interject, here's the solution. Women don't want that. They want to talk about the problem, and then they land on their own solution, you know. So he was doing everything wrong. And then he discovered, well, let me treat women differently, and he discovered what they really wanted. Now he gets married, he's happy, he's way up here, way up above where he started. I discovered the alkaline diet. That's how I got rid of my cancer. I discovered keto. I discovered meditation. I discovered the power of affirmations, plant medicine, the secret, whatever it was. And then you give the audience a little bit of what you learned. So I could talk about the importance of goal setting, affirmations, visualization, acting as if, having support groups. I don't give them everything in my book or my program because then there'd be no reason for them to get it. But now I've whetted their appetite. I've given them some value so now they've kind of test-driven Jack Canfield and go, wow, he says good things. Now they want to be with me. And so I think if you come from that kind of a way, you're still kind of introducing the fact that, you know, I've been there where life wasn't perfect. And you're speaking to where they are, where the listeners are that are driving home from work or listening to your podcast or whatever without rubbing their nose in it and then saying, you know, hard sell, hard sell, hard sell. You want to make them want it as opposed to that they need it, is my opinion. Mm. Honestly, this is music to my ears. And I'm so glad you shared this dip exercise for everybody who's listening, who's trying to understand, well, how do I present my offer in a way that's you know, congruent to principles of selling with love. And one thing I'd want to share at this point for everybody who's tuning in, we're going to leave in the show notes a link for you to actually register to a webinar that we've been working with Jack and actually putting together an amazing webinar around abundance, which is related to his breakthrough success principles. And so we'd want you to actually have a look. If you register to that page, attend the webinar, you'll be able to see in prime example what it looks like when you use these principles in effective marketing. And it's an amazing class. You get to learn a ton. And some of you might even join some of these events that happen either live or online. So have a look so you can study it and you might find yourself attending as well. So make sure to check that out in the show notes. We'll make sure that there's a link available on whatever platform that you're tuning into. So Jack, honestly, this is the healthy way of selling. And I know there's a lot of people that are in the field that say it's not selling, it's sharing. And one of the things I'm trying to give back to the word sell is the selling is selling and it's a beautiful thing and it's healthy. And so I love that we have to go and build these bridges because there's so much damage that has been done in the sales, call it brand. <laughs> the sales brand has been really dragged through the month by a lot of these bad players. And one of the missions I'm on is to be able to teach great people about how if you use sales and you use it effectively, bad players will not have a space to exist in the marketplace. Like that's really what I'm all about. And so I'd be curious to know, even knowing these principles, you're not short of success, Jack. Like you've done so many amazing things and you stay with this high level of consciousness and integrity. So I'm, I'm curious why people are still tempted to use these other means that just, you know, are not elevating the soul, but they seem like they're chipping away at the soul when it comes to following and trying to have success. I think that people that are conscious, that are awake, that are loving, that are committed to making a difference, contribution coming from a more perhaps spiritual perspective, if you want to call it that, one of, I say generosity, then you are not in a place of greed. You're not in a place of trying to manipulate people I often refer to people that you meet, either they're like a dog that wants to hump your leg or they're a dog that just comes up and you want to reach down and pet. And, you know, we have this this term like, oh, he was like a used car salesman, which is like, you know, the humping dog. You know that they want something from you and they're going to do whatever they can, use whatever techniques they can, not really noticing if it's what you need, not noticing if it's the best thing for you. I mean, I sometimes talk people out of taking my trainings. I don't think they need it. They've already got what I maybe could teach them. I don't think they can afford it. And I don't want to take their money if it's going to be a difficult situation for them. So I think you want to be for somebody. You're there to serve them. If you come from service, then whatever you do is going to be perceived that way. And then if they need what you have or want what you have, they're going to want to play. And then it's a matter of you just making sure that they understand clearly 
what you have. I remember when I used to I used to work for a company many, many years ago, and I was in my late 20s and 30s, 30s. It was a training company. People would say, they talk about the price. Oh my God, it's like $395 for the weekend. And I said, well, let me ask you a question. If I had a new Mercedes Benz outside and it was for sale for $395, would you buy it? And they all go, yeah, of course. Why? Well, it's worth like $50,000 and today may be $70,000. Well, then one of two things is true. You don't need what I'm selling or I've not convinced you about how good it is. So let's talk about what questions you have, what your concerns are, what your worries are, you know, whatever. And normally they had some question, and if I answered it honestly and clearly, their objections would be handled. But it wasn't a manipulative kind of script you get for people doing telesales, where you say this, they say that, you know they're reading from a script because it has nothing to do with where you really are. And so if you really honestly have a true conversation with people about their fears, their resistances, and I find that most objections that people raise are things like, number one, I can't afford it. One of two things is true. They can, but they'd rather spend it on a new Gucci belt, which they think is more valuable for them than the training. So I like to think that maybe the training is more valuable. Maybe it's not. They often have tried things before. Like I took the S training and it didn't work. Or I took that training to become a coach and I never did it. So now they don't trust themselves to use what they got. They've got a, a spouse at home who they, they're afraid if they do it or they decide without the spouse's approval, they're going to get in trouble. So they need to go have that conversation. So that's okay. You know, and things like that that you can address so that people aren't letting their fears and their past failures stop them from getting the, the value that's available now. But it needs to come from an honest conversation, not just a memorized script that you have. Yeah. As much as I see some of the memorized script is great for training and awareness. It's almost like your training wheels, but you actually hold yourself back from the magic that happens when you're actually balancing on two wheels on a bike. That's a magical thing. But when you have the training wheels, it's the magic is gone. In the same way that if you're trying to sell to somebody and you're using a script, you can't really connect to them. And I love that that emphasis on connection actually makes a huge difference in every sale. So, you know, oftentimes when I, I speak of my principle around selling with love, I substitute the word love with caring. It seems like we're in an age where a lot of people feel so exhausted that they are like, oh, you know what? Sometimes I just don't have any care left in me to give to others. I've heard two theories. I've heard some that it's like you only have limited amount of care to give in a world and you have to be selective on who you give to. And I've also heard of a mindset where no care is an unlimited resource that replenishes itself the more you give it. I'd be curious to know on which side of the camp do you land and why? Yeah, I, I land on the side that the sun doesn't decide it's tired and stop radiating light. It just does what the sun does. So if you are someone that's living your life from a place of love and caring, you know, there is such a thing, we see the research something called compassion fatigue. And, you know, if you're, they actually have research that shows if you're going for parole. So you want to get paroled, right? So you go to the parole board. If you go to the parole board in the afternoon, your chances of getting paroled are much less than if you appear before the parole board in the morning. Because by the afternoon, the parole boards, their compassion level's gone down. And so there is a certain level of, can you be giving all the time? I do think, though, if you're really tapped into the essence of who you are, if you've removed you know, the fears, the blocks, the damage that's been done to you as a child, the limiting beliefs, the trauma, et cetera, the more you process that out and have more of your essence available, then I don't think you get tired of being caring and loving. It's your essence. You know, you could get tired of working a 16-hour day in the sales force, but I think the reality is when you're there, I never run out of care. I mean, sometimes I'm tired, but it's, I'm still caring. I just need a rest, you know? Yeah. It's amazing when you are finding that type of alignment. I think we've all had a glimpse in the workplace where it's like the day flies by when you're doing something that's truly in alignment. And I think these are previews of what's possible if we really tap into that. You spoke about some of the blocks that could exist or things that could get in the way for you tapping into that kind of source. And obviously, when you speak about success principles, a big part of that is to remove negative self-belief and these limiting factors in the mind. And I'd be curious to know when it comes to sales or success, according to this, do you see some of the most prevalent blocks exist? And is this something we can self-identify? Sure. I think, and I work a lot with 
training trainers. It's up to 4,500 certified trainers now in 117 countries. And one of the biggest challenges many of them have is being able to enroll people to attend their seminars, to hire them to be a coach, you know, whatever. And basically, there's some limiting beliefs about asking about their worthiness, about, you know, rejection, feeling incompetent, you know, not wanting to be misunderstood, all that kind of stuff that comes up. So I think one of the things that I love the most about my work is being able to do belief change work with everyone. Twice a year, I do a free online two-hour seminar to help people release limiting beliefs that they have. And you usually get about 2,000 to 4,000 people sign up from all over the world. And I take them through about a 40-minute process, closed-eye process, to look at where do you feel stuck? What do you feel like it's difficult for you to do? And sales enrollment is a big thing for a lot of people. And it invariably goes back to worthiness, to not being lovable, to not being taken seriously, to parents who didn't listen to them, you know, and go on and on. And we'll take them back to that key moment in their childhood, usually between three to eight years old, where they made a decision. It's not okay to ask for what I want. It's not okay to ask for money. If you're really caring, you do everything for free. You know, it's not spiritual. It's not Christian. You know, it's amazing what comes up. And then they can notice that they decided that in the culture of their family or school or playground or whatever, but now they can redecide it and they can have a new belief. And literally at the end, I take them forward to when they're 85 years old and what would their 85 year old self, who's now beyond that problem, who's been successful, who's spiritually evolved, what would they tell you? And the advice they get is amazing. And it's like, the, the fun part is it's inside them already, but they've never known how to access it. So it's phenomenal. And unfortunately, most people don't know how to do that. They've never been exposed to that kind of deep work. And when they do it, all of those things that felt difficult just disappear. They dissolve. And then we can be freely, fully who we are in a moment. And who we freely, fully are naturally is a more loving, caring, joyful, playful person. Yeah. Well, again, I'm going to nudge people to either check out that webinar that I spoke about earlier or grab a copy of the success principles. I swear that all of the concepts you've heard in personal growth that help you be the best version of yourself are included in that piece of literature. And you get a chance to actually be exposed to some of the time tested principles that really make you more successful, where you can take ownership, take responsibility, and really see that if you're having any struggles when it comes to having more sales and more success in your life, there's something you can do about it. And it usually starts with you. Jack, it's been so fun going through that book. And there's one of the things as a principle that I see you hamper on. And I've noticed the pattern in the book. This one keeps being a recurring theme. And I've already mentioned it, responsibility taking a lot of responsibility for everything that is happening around you. And it seems like there's a lot of actors to blame for some of the limiting conditions we have in our life today, whether that's technologies moving too fast, the economy's not going the right way, there's some turmoil around the world. There seems to be a lot of external factors out of our control that are easy to blame for the lack of success in our own lives. Yet you kept stressing how there's still massive responsibility that we should be taking on and it will be a direct correlation to a lot of the success we have i'd be curious to see are we still as bullish on that principle even in these times of change oh yeah absolutely you know you've mentioned all these changes that have happened internet computers laptops cell phones social media youtube amazon etsy zoom ai aura rings apple watches you know uber lyft you can go on uh, and, and all those things definitely have an impact in the culture but here's the deal. I teach a formula called E plus R equals O. There's events. These are all events we're talking about. Then here's your response to the event, and that produces an outcome. So what happens is, right now, AI is in the world. Everybody's That's an event that is impacting everybody. But why are some people successful using it and some people not and afraid of it? That's an individual response to that. So what happens is, Things are going on in the world, politics, economics, people, wars, et cetera, that are interacting with you or you're seeing them on television or whatever. And it's how we respond to that. We have a choice about our response, the thoughts we think, the images we bring up in our head, 
and the behaviors we do or don't do. Those are our three things we can control. And so what happens is some people learn responses of successful people. They think certain kind of thoughts, they visualize success, they take actions. If it doesn't work, they try another action. They don't beat themselves up. They have positive self-talk. They learn more and more about how to do this stuff, like watching podcasts like these. But they're engaged in learning better responses, if you will. And I think, you know, when I wrote the book, The Success Principles, I really wanted to write a book that would basically, if you never read another book about success, and there's a ton of them out there and they all have valuable information, but if you never read another book, that book alone could help you get from where you are to where you want to be. And I wrote it thinking, I'm done with success. I'm going to move on to just teach spiritual things. I didn't realize that once you write a book about something, that's all they want you to talk about for the next 10 years, you know, because that's what they know you for. So it's okay. But what happens is that these events occur, you then respond to them, you have outcomes. So I interviewed 75 of the most successful people in the United States and some around the world in business, sales, sports, entertainment, the military, government, et cetera. And I noticed that there were similar principles that everybody lived by. And one of them was 100% responsibility. And notice it doesn't say 99% responsibility. I always tell people, how would you like to be married to someone who's 99% committed to monogamy? You know, you'd always be wondering, is today the day they're going to cheat on me? So uh, you want to be 100% responsible. Your outside world that you're looking at is kind of like the computer screen. So we're talking to each other through a computer. So what I'm seeing on that screen is what's in the hard drive being projected out into the world so I can see it. Everything around you, the circumstances, your house, the money you have, the people you're responding to, how your business is doing, et cetera, is all the external projection of what's going on in your internal hard drive. So if I want something to be different, I'm going to have to think different thoughts, visualize different outcomes, and engage in different behaviors, which is what you're teaching people to do, how to be more loving and effective in sales and being inducing fear and scarcity and all that kind of stuff. So basically... If you take 100% responsibility, that means giving up blaming, giving up complaining, and I call it drop out of the, dropping out of the ain't it awful club, because local bars tend to be where everyone goes to bitch and moan about their job, the, the economy, their boss, you know, the government, whatever's going on. And now you're getting all this reinforcement that other people are controlling the quality of my life. And as long as you believe that, you're going to be a victim of this external reality. And the truth is, we can create anything with our mind. As Bob Proctor used to say, everything is created twice, first in your mind and then in your hand. You know, then you can hold it. The first thing, you visualize the car, you think about the car, you think about how to make money to get the car, you visualize having the car, you believe you deserve the car, and then eventually you have the car. And so whatever you've got around you, ask yourself, what thoughts am I thinking? What behaviors am I engaging in that's producing this reality? You know, maybe I'm controlling everybody. I'm I'm too bitchy all the time. I'm thinking negative thoughts. I'm judging everybody. You know, whatever it might be. What would change that? And that's why when you interview people and people go on other podcasts and they read their books and listen to their audio programs, they're listening to other people who figured out some of the things that you want to do and how you want to think that's going to get you what you want. So we need to be studying that, becoming aware of that, and then intentionally changing ourselves through practice, through meditation, through discipline, through affirmations, visualization, et cetera, so that we can create more of what we want. Hmm. I love this principle so much. And there's a moment that I applied this principle quite strongly. I had a leisure activity that I very much enjoyed, which is the shisha or the hookah which is this Arabian pipe there. You put some charcoal, some flavored tobacco, and then as a social activity or actually a productive activity, I'd love to go to the cafe, have the shisha pipe, get some work, write some copy, do some advertising, and then I could be able to smoke this tobacco. And I loved it. It was very addictive. Surprise, surprise. There's nicotine. <laughs> and so 
and I would always justify it. It'd be very easy. And I'd be like, yeah, I won't smoke too much. And, and then I'd be like, always tempted to go back. And then I'd go, I went, oh, I might've went three times this week. That's a bit more than what I said. I said, I'll go about one time a week. And, and this was an expression to me of what it looks like to be fractionally committed to taking responsibility and wanting to make a change. It's so hard. And I was always being pulled back into the habit. And at one point I took a time to actually set goals for myself and choose the identity. And with the identity that I chose for myself is I am an elite athlete that does running and competes in obstacle course racing. And then I started looking at the habits in my life and I'm like, how does this align to the identity that I have? And I was like, wow, I cannot be smoking I need high lung capacity for cardio. And so the decision was made. This was, well, over two years now that I've made the decision where I was like, well, it's very simple. Nothing will ever be inhaled. I will never smoke a cigarette from this day forward, hookah, vapes. Because what happened is I had stopped cigarettes and I was like, well, I'll just do the vape. Then I was like, I won't do the vape. I'll do the hookah. And I kept pushing the goalpost to allow myself to continue to have that. And to use some of the quotes you have, I was 99% committed here and 99% taking responsibility. And it was a bitch. But the moment I went to it 100%, it was a breeze. Would you share more about that difference in commitment and responsibility and how it makes life so much easier when people assume it makes it harder? Well, why it's easier is you don't have an ongoing conversation with yourself every day. It's like if you make a commitment that you're going to get out of bed in the morning and then you're going to go, in your case, run perhaps, or go to the gym, or lift weights, or do yoga, or meditate, or read for an hour, whatever it is. If you make a commitment to do that, it's a 100% commitment no matter what. Then what happens when you wake up, you don't sit there and go, oh, it's raining today. I don't know if I want to do it. It's snowing out. No, my ankle hurts a little bit. You know, you have to have that conversation every morning. And that that's the bitch part, right? If you decide, I don't care what's going on. And obviously, if you break your leg, it's another story. But if, I don't care what's going on. I'm going to do this. Then there's no conversation anymore. There's no argument anymore. It's just called, I'm going to do it. Like I brush my teeth every night before I go to bed. There's no argument about it. It's just something I do. And you want to get the habits that are going to support you, the disciplines that are going to get you where you want to go to that same level. I just do it. I'm the person who gets up and does it. I run, I do yoga, I meditate, I write for an hour a day, whatever it is. And then it's just called, this is it. And you're not having that conversation. It's a bitch because it's easy to talk yourself out of stuff. So, so easy. So you just eliminate that possibility. You know, whenever I hear somebody say, oh, you know, I'm not that good at selling. I'm like, I'm pretty sure you're good at selling yourself when you want to hit that snooze button. <laughs> right. <laughs> no. So I wanted to ask about another thing that I see in this field of personal growth. This is really related to our field where we speak about the good habits. We speak about, you know, the healthy things that we can do on a regular basis. And you've shared some of the things that you do, like, okay, well, brushing our teeth. That's maybe the one that we can all agree is a good thing. And then in the morning, you can hear a lot of people practicing our morning routines. And I also appreciate some morning routines like, okay, get up, you know, is it make your bed, read a bit, have a meditative hour. There's a lot of different habits that we can inject that I would say the majority of them have massive positive benefits, if not all of them. But I've seen almost the other side of personal growth as well, where it's like you become obsessed with only good habit routines. And I've seen, you know, some TikToks or Instagram reels. I'm a little older, so I'm still an Instagram reel guy. So the younger generation on this show will judge me for using that. But nonetheless, I'll see people say, okay, if you want to have success, you have to wake up at three in the morning. That's because you get ahead of everybody else. And then you got to meditate for an hour. And then you have to visualize for an hour, take a nice plunge. Then you got to journal for three hours. And then you have to read a book for another two. And it's like, and I'm obviously being a little tongue in cheek here, but it's like you have to go through a checklist of personal growth habits that'll take you about five hours and then you work. And it's almost become too much, too ridiculous. And I don't know if in your students and in your ecosystem, you've witnessed that as well. What do you say when people become almost too obsessed with personal growth that it becomes almost a limiting crutch to their success? I actually used to read a letter that one of my staff wrote. It, I mean, he, it wasn't true, but he wrote it, and then I started using it. And he says, Dear Jack, I'm not having the success I want. I'm doing everything you told me to do. I'm getting up at 5 o'clock. I'm lifting weights for half an hour. I'm running for an hour. I'm writing in my journal for half an hour. Then I do my affirmations and my visualization. Then I go and I have a high-protein drink breakfast. And then I go, and he, he went on and on and on and on. And he says, and then around 5 o'clock, I go, 
wow, where did they go? Why am I not successful? You know, it's like, because that's what we do. We think we have to do everything. I think if you're doing, you know, some things you can do three days a week. You know, you don't have to do, like, we know if you go to the gym three or four days a week, it's as good as going to be as, like, you know, every day. And you have to pick and choose. Are you going to do some work on your mindset? You're going to work with your body? You're going to work with your attitude, let's say, your emotions, um, your consciousness, et cetera. But you can't do everything. And I think, you know, for me, I teach what I call the hour of power, which is 20 minutes of meditation, gratitude, exercise, affirmations, visualization, those things, 20 minutes of aerobic or, you know, uh, high intensity interval training, something like that. And then 20 minutes of reading or listening to something uplifting, then get on with your day, you know. And some people do more than that. Maybe you could do two hours, but if you're doing all day long, I've seen people use it as a way of avoiding doing the work that's needed to get to where they want to go. It's like you're just working on yourself because you're afraid to go do the work like in the world where you might get rejected, you might fail, you think like you don't have the resources you need. And so it's, it's a way of avoidance, you know. So I agree with you. Nice. Yeah. And, and that's one that I call out a lot in my field because oftentimes, especially early in the business, your main role is to make the transactions happen. If you don't have any revenue coming in, business isn't really existing. And I see people, if it's not a question of doing the personal growth, with at least if it's a distraction, it's still a pretty healthy distraction. But I've seen even in the business sense, it'll be like, oh, I'm going to go post on social media or I'm going to go do these activities, which would be considered low return activities to distract yourself, keep yourself busy. But some of the high impact things that need to be done get avoided, which goes back to what you were saying earlier, is you need to kind of do the digging of the blocks and the things that have been holding you back to be able to operate from that place of joy, effectiveness and success in the process. Well, one of the things I say is like you always want to be in forward motion until you get stuck. And then when you're not doing the things you know you need to do, then you want to like explore. Okay, what's going on in my belief system? What fears are coming up? Is there something I need to know that I don't know? Are there resources I need to access or study to build up a skill or some knowledge level or whatever? And I think in sales and, and enrollment, you know, there's basically making offers, making requests, and then making promises. That's really what it's all about. And if you're not on the phone or in person, whether you're speaking to a large group or you're speaking one-on-one -on -one to people, whatever it might be. And I'll tell you, I see a lot of people that originally come out of our work. I never really decided I wanted to train people how to fill workshops. I've had to learn how to do that because otherwise my students wouldn't have any work. I just wanted to train people how to do it so they could be good at it. But what happens is that most people today I see that are not being successful in this world are putting all their energy on social media, their website, writing copy. If they're not interacting with people, they're not closing the sale. You know, they're hoping that their online course will get a thousand clicks. And the reality is you need to interact with people, whether it's in a group setting, you're on doing a Facebook live thing, you're talking to people, you're one-on-one -on -one with people. That's scarier, I think, for some people. And so they go over here where it's not so scary, where there's not a real interaction and they get distracted by that, spend a lot of money and don't really get the results. And is there ever a increasing amount of those distractions as you can do? And I think if you go and browse on the internet, everybody's like, stop, go and do this. You shouldn't talk to a single prospect until you have your whole brand kit and your website and your social medias. You need to have these followers. I'm like, these followers aren't paying me right now. That makes it really difficult. <laughs> how do yeah. I, how do I translate that? <laughs> right. Jack, one of the things I find most fascinating from your perspective is that you've had the luxury of seeing the world go through some digital transformation. And you've been in this industry for decades and you've seen changes in the way that we interact with information in a massive way. And you've continued to stay relevant. You've continued to share principles that have been timeless. And I'd be curious to know in the decades of you doing this, if there's been any concept that you've taught or that you've lived by that you've seen yourself either evolve, transmute, or completely change your opinion on that you think is very relevant for today's time? Well, when you ask that question, what comes up in my mind first, I used to fill seminars by doing what we call guest events. So we were doing like a week-long seminar or whatever. And then throughout 
weeknights, we would do these guest events to be like from seven till nine, where people would come and we would have them do some exercises, maybe guided visualization and meditation, some partnership things, et cetera. So they were test driving. They were experiencing it. And the idea was to have them have a really good experience. So they go, I want more. And that was really the enrollment process for years in the work we did. With the internet, you can do a lot of that online now. And so the, you know, I'm doing most of my trainings during the COVID were all virtual because we couldn't gather in in um, you know conference rooms and hotels and so forth. And the value of that was that we realized we could do a lot virtually, not everything the same. We can't hug each other. I can't have you milling around asking for things and getting rejected on purpose so you get over your fear of rejection the same way that I can in a live room. But I'd say 85% of what we do, we started doing online and getting more people attending because they could attend from India and Saudi Arabia without taking a plane. They could do it without leaving home, no hotel bills, no airline bills, no restaurant bills. So we've diverted a lot of our training to that area. And we still do live things. We do some hybrid, but where we would do maybe 300 people live in a training, we could have a thousand people online in the training. And so our revenue actually increased, our costs went down because we didn't have all those things to pay for, and we're impacting more people. And so we had to learn, how do you put people in breakout groups? How do you tell stories that are engaging? How do you get them to move so that they get up and move like we were doing a training? How do you use music so they can actually hear? Well, you know, there's some technology to learn and some ways to make it more engaging, you know, period. But the reality is we learned to do that. And when the pandemic occurred, I had a job to go to the Bahamas to work for Bacardi, which is the company that makes Bacardi rum, and train 400 of their top managers from around the world. And it was canceled because they were not allowing people in and out of the country. And I thought, oh, there goes a $30,000 consulting job. And what happened was they said, look, we had a conversation. I said, well, why don't we just broadcast this out to everyone that works for Bacardi? And it's me, anyone. So we ended up doing a seminar for three hours for 4,000 people, the entire company. And they were doing it at home. Their families could watch. So it was reinforcing the principles. And I still got my full fee. And I said, oh, that was cool. Didn't have to travel. Got my fee, reached more people. They were happy. I was happy. So a lot of things like that are emerging. And certainly we've learned how to do online marketing better and social media stuff and all that was required too. I think it's a piece of it. I don't think it's all of it, like a lot of people wish it was, but you know, we've gotten good at that. And then with AI, AI has come along and opened up a lot of stuff. I mean, I saw a guy the other day, we were at a conference that I put on for the Transformational Leadership Council, which you mentioned, and he did a presentation on AI. And he got up there and he said, okay, Someone raise your hand who wants to play. Someone raise their hand. Said, what are you working on now? I'm working on this. I'd like to have a marketing plan for my new book and for at least six weeks using AI, you know, using TikTok and Facebook and blah, 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 and podcasts. And within five minutes, what came back was a total marketing plan for six weeks with copy for every one of those media and it was brilliant. That's really changed things a lot as well. So it's amazing what's possible. You have to learn it or hire someone who knows. You know, like we used to have chief executive officers, chief financial officers. Now we have chief AI officers, you know, in companies. But it's where it is. You got to adapt. Mm-hmm. Well, this is fascinating. And of course, I've also been someone who's dabbled with it. And I remember it was a year and a half ago. I believe it was a year and a half ago or a year ago. I was using some of the tools that were available at that time. I was able to take a picture of myself and then upload my voice and then give them a piece of, we had a social experiment that we did as a team. We said, what if we tried to create an entire course that wouldn't require me to be there? And so we actually used AI that created the entire curriculum, the script for an entire program on how to close deals. And then they used my voice by able to pull from my podcast, the voice that you hear now, and just with a picture was able to create an animated video of me speaking in my voice, reading a script, which was around selling. And when that happened, I was blown away by what's going on in technology. And that was the worst that it will ever be. 
And so I started wondering, okay, this is definitely the direction that needs to go. I need to keep a pulse on it. It will evolve. How do I make myself that I am ready, I am prepared, and I'm excited, not fearful about what we're coming up. And I guess that comes back from this principle that I see in you, which is whatever's change that's coming or, or innovation that's coming out, even if it's competitors that are coming, you always have this abundant mindset. You're not looking at anything from a scarce resource. You used the example earlier that the sun shines bright for everyone and it isn't holding back. And I see that in the way that you behave, even in the way that you've created Transformational Leadership Council, you're elevating your competitors in the process. Somebody could look at it that way, but instead you're leveling up the field. And I'd be curious to know, you know, how do we inspire ourselves to be operating from that space? Because I think the more people understand the fact that you can be abundant, you can operate from that way, it brings more success to you, a positive ripple to the world, and you get to serve in a beautiful way that makes you happy. But people seem to have lost that grasp. What's the secret here? What do you know? <laughs> well, you know, I think for me, it's been a, an evolution over time. I mean, I learned to meditate when I was in my 20s. And you begin to realize that the world is always working for you, not against you, that things are happening for you, not to you, that there's always a gift in every obstacle. I love there's a book called What's in the Way is the Way. And so I, I just love that that's how I operate in life. I also believe that there's an unlimited amount of resources in the universe. Now, you know, you can go to the ocean. I love this metaphor. You go to the ocean and many people go there with a tablespoon some people go there with a glass. Some people go there with a bucket. Some people go there with a tank car. Some people just put a pipeline in and keep sucking water out, you know? And so there's an endless amount of supply there. And it's true, there's an endless supply of money. We think there's only so much money. It's not the money. It's the transactions that occur with money. It's the flow of money that's really important. I used to do an exercise in my trainings to demonstrate this, where I'd have 10 people come up to the stage and I'd give to the first person, I'd say, I'll give you a dollar for a hug. And they'd give me a hug, and I'd give them a dollar. And they'd turn to the next person, and they'd say, I'll give you a dollar for a hug. And so it would go all the way down to the bottom of the line. And I realized, I got them to see that one dollar is still only one dollar. There's only, this dollar bill is still only the only dollar in this universe of this game. But look what it did when it flowed, when it was shared, when it was interacting with the world. So there's no limit to how much abundance there is. Now, obviously, you know, we're polluting the earth. There may be a limit to how much fresh water there might be if we're polluting all the lakes, et cetera. But we can fix that. So there is not a limit there if we decide to do the right thing. So it, for me, I think over time, I realized there was always enough. And a lot of us have a belief there's not enough. I heard Bill Clinton once, uh, there was a conference that he was being interviewed. And he said, they asked him, he said, what's the difference between you and George Bush. And he said, George Bush believes there's only so many resources in the world, and it's his job to get as many of those resources for the United States as possible. My belief is there's unlimited resources, and my job is to make sure they get distributed as far and wide as possible. Now, that gives you two different political positions, you know, and one is control and the other is abundant. And so when you come from that abundant state, what I find is more abundance comes to you. Michael Beckwith, who's in the movie The Secret, and a wonderful guy, recently I saw a video of him, and it was called The Importance of the Law of Resonance. And he said, when you are radiating, oh, there was a law of radiance. He said, when you're radiating, you don't effort to radiate, you know, like the sun. We'll go back to the sun. The sun just radiates. If I say, I'm going to share something with you, I now have to have an intentional act to share something with you. If I'm radiating love, abundance, joy, whatever, there's no effort. There's no intentional choice. It's just me being me. And when I'm being me fully, everything comes to me that I'm meant to have. In other words, I'm not meant to teach everyone on the planet. Tony Robbins gets his share, I get my share, you get your share, you know, Lisa Nichols gets her share, whatever. And people are attracted to that beingness that is the next step that they need to integrate into their life. So if they need to be more powerful, maybe they go to Tony. If they need to be more loving, maybe they come to me. But I come from the position that I'm never not going to have people that are attracted to what I have to offer because the world's lined up that we all have a gift. And if we all share our gift, then everything will get met. Bakers will bake, chefs will cook, 
technicians will fix things, inventors will invent things, the airplanes won't fly out of the sky because people love to fix things, you know, whatever. Music will be made, movies will be made. And if we just follow that, then we follow our bliss, we follow our joy. It gets really easy. And uh, just you start to realize there's enough of everything. Jack, it's been an absolute joy having you come on the show and share these principles with my audience. It's such a blessing to have an opportunity to speak with you and to hear about these principles to bring more success, more awareness, and raise consciousness in the process. I know I mentioned a little earlier that for those of you who want to go deeper with the material of Jack, there's a webinar that we've actually collaborated in the creation that shows these principles in action on how beautiful you can do your marketing and how impactful you can make your message in the process of coming from that place of love, of care, abundance, and success comes along the way as well. So we'll put a link into the show notes for you to see what this training is about, how to bring more abundance for yourself so you get out of that scarcity mindset and realize that when you make that shift, things can become easier for you. And we're excited to be able to share that with all of you. Jack, it's been a wonderful journey learning these principles, but there's one question I do ask all my guests who come on the show, which is you're on the Selling with Love podcast. What does selling with love mean to Jack Canfield? It means that you stay in a place of not being desperate, not being greedy, not being afraid, not trying to manipulate people that you come from a place of caring that somehow what you have is what they might need. And if those things are aligned, it's gonna show up and it's gonna happen. As long as you don't hold back, trust your intuition, say the words that come into your mind in that present moment because you're in that space of real heart connection. If you do that, then I think you'll be selling with love. Jack, once again, it's an absolute pleasure. I love that you're an embodiment of somebody who follows these principles and you've attracted, I, I know now personally, a wonderful team that surrounds you. You have wonderful students that have had some massive transformations. You have a group of trainers that are replicating this message and the ripple around the world to really bring more success, abundance to the world around. So thank you for your mission. Thank you for your impact and thank you for your time today sharing with me. Well, thank you for the opportunity to share. That's what we're about. I am your host, Jason Mark Campbell, and this is the Selling with Love podcast. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.